As you can see this morning, I want to talk you, with you about a rather somewhat light subject, but not really, straight out of context. Of course, we're making a play off the movie, what is it, Ice Cube and the NWA gangster rap band a few years ago put out a movie called Straight, straight Out of Compton, which was a big, big hit. I know nothing about that except what I've read, so that's not the point. But I'm not the only person who's ever done a sermon on taking verses out of context. This type of thought has been used many times by many people, and so whatever I'm saying to you will appear to be completely plagiarized. Uh, not entirely, because we could do a long series on verses that are generally taken out of context, the way they're used by Christians and other people. Be a long series. I've only picked out five this morning. I want to spend a couple of minutes on each, not, not very long each. That, that are commonly misused and taken out of their proper setting. You know, the, the whole, the Bible is a, is really a composite book of 66 different books that have been put together, that were put together first by the Jews, by, uh, by, they gathered up the writings of their inspired prophets and his histories, and they saved those. Others they kept, but they didn't consider them to be inspired. And then the 27 books of the New Testament gathered up by the early disciples and followers of Christ as the letters of Paul and other documents. Other, other documents existed during that time, but they were not considered inspired. We have them, but they were never considered part of what was inspired and left by God. But these 66 books we have are God's way of communicating with the world in the most, most of the time. He does communicate with, to us through the natural creation, it teaches us about his divinity and his and his power, as it says in Romans 1. But the way God communicates with us is through this word. And therefore, it isn't just, but, but the Bible is not just a collection of quotations. You know, you can buy the, the quotations of C.S. Lewis or Winston Churchill where they take little snippets from different speeches and put them together in different and different under different topics, and you can read about those great quotes from great men, and that's a good thing to do. It's it's interesting to see the thoughts of Abraham Lincoln or other people like that who wrote a lot, and you see, you, you most of us can't read all their speeches, but we can read the snippets and get the main things from it, and I like that. But the Bible is not written like that, and yet that's often how it's used by people. Just a thought here, or there a sentence there, and then we take it and we use it however we want to use it. And we miss the, we miss the point. It's the Bible scriptures are meant to be understood in their context. And then you can make a broader application based upon what you find in the context in which it was written. Now I know in hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation, there, there is some legitimate thought that many of the things that God says, by the way they're used in the Bible from all the New Testament, for example, are statements that are meant to be taken out and used by themselves. We understand that. But, but most of the scriptures are meant to be understood pretty clearly in a context or else we will completely misuse the verse. You, you've often heard this illustration of the, of taking Bible verses out of context and using them where it says, you take the scripture, Judas went out and hanged himself. Then you take the other scripture, go thou and do likewise. Now you've taken two Bible verses and you've put them together, but since you didn't keep them in any kind of context, you've taught something that's completely untrue that the Bible would never sanction. And something ridiculous. And so that's a, obviously a silly example. 
So it's important that we remember when we look at the Bible to try to read it. Uh, for the first 30 some years of my preaching and all through college, I used the American Standard, 1901 American Standard text of the Bible, which was in paragraph form. So all the verses were not lined up on the side. They, they flowed like a natural paragraph. Now, of course, paragraphs uh, are just collections of sentences around a single thought. And so that paragraphing was done by human beings. Well, so were the verse numbers for that matter. But it kept things in its context. So I could often tell you the, the verses around the scripture because I read them that way first. Now that I've been doing all these presentations here, I find it usually is easier for people to read the scriptures, it seems to me, when they're in more familiar format to them where the verses are lined up on the left side, like we present them mostly. If you're not careful, you'll pull verses out of that and miss, or you'll just stop at the end of a chapter and not realize that the, the content the subject really goes on into the next chapter. G Genesis 1 is a good example of that, by, by the way, we've been studying. But let's take a look at two or three of these this morning. We'll hopefully get all five of them in. Here's one, verse 13, Philippians 4, 13. Now, I've got all the verse around it kind of dimmed out. People quote this all the time. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Now, Judy showed me a mug that she saw that says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context on the side of the mug. Because that verse is taken out of context. It's, it's usually the idea is that we can, in this, uh, we can dunk a basketball, hit a home run, a bench press, you know, a, a school bus. We can win the lottery. We can close a business deal. Anything that you want to accomplish for your own benefit or that makes you uh, better in your mind, you have to use this verse. To, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, let me tell you, folks, you can't. Because that's not what this verse is about. Some of you can't even graduate high school. Wasn't Christ helping you? You see, that's not the point of that verse. The idea that we can just pick out something we want to do and say, I can do this because Christ is, strengthens me in this. Maybe, but that's not what this verse means at all. If you look at the context around it, in the verses that are dimmed out, you see Paul says, I rejoice greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard of need, to need or want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased which is pushed down to the bottom. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. And he goes on to talk about the fact that they sent him money to help him because he was in dire need. Paul isn't talking about hitting a home run and seeing I did this because Jesus... Don't you love it? The batters come up to the plate in baseball and they do this, cross themselves. And the, the pitcher, I, I wish pitchers would cross themselves for every pitch too. So here's two guys crossing themselves, opposing one another. It's ridiculous to use God that way. It's disrespectful to use God that way. I tell you, some of the guys, celebrities who've thrown out these first pitches at baseball games should have, you know, crossed themselves. They can't even get it to the plate. But why didn't they do that? You see, this verse isn't talking about that. It's talking about the fact that when, when Paul was facing difficult circumstances because he was a Christian, he could do, he could do what was necessary to be faithful to God. He could be a, be abased and still be faithful. 
and he could live in a state of want and need and deprivation because Christ gave him strength. He even said in one of his last letters that at my first defense before Caesar, no one stood by me, but the Lord strengthened me. He wasn't talking about some great achievement he was accomplishing. He was talking about the suffering he was enduring. And we can endure that. Can you endure the difficulties of life, whatever it throws at you by the strength that Christ gives you? You can. And that's exactly what this verse is saying. The all things here is what needs to be defined. All things is not just whatever we want to make it. Um, of course, I have a big objection to this saying that's been propounded by Disney. If you can dream it, you can do it. Um, uh, no, there are limits to human knowledge and achievement and ability. There are limits. And people can, I, I can dream, I can fly off of a, I often dream this, that I'm flying along. I don't have a jetpack. I don't want to need a jetpack in my dreams because I'm just flying along. It happens when you're crippled and you can't run very well. You dream of running really fast and flying, you know. I guess so. that's what's going on. Can I just fly because I say I want to? Of course not. What a complete misunderstanding. Of, it's part of the selfish me generation that whatever I want, whatever I think I should be able to do to build me up, to make me what I want, then I should be able to do that and God will help me do that. He won't. In fact, Paul was a greater man than any of us in his achievements before he became a Christian, intellectually and all, uh, on all other ways. And now he finds himself in prison being mistreated. And here he says, now I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context is completely different than the way we mean it. Or here's another one. We can spend a lot more time on that. We won't. <clears throat> Matthew 18, 24, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am. In the midst of them. Now we hear this verse used to basically encourage somebody, encourage us when we have so few here, like we do this morning, we have someone here, but we used to have this auditorium full and out into the lobby at one time. So when there's a particularly low attendance, uh, we use that or uh, maybe a, a home Bible study uh, for a prayer, for a prayer meeting or something like that. It's even being used now by people, well, if they want to skip a worship service to go uh, to a football game, they do that and they say, well, two or three of us were in the car and so where two or three of us are gathered here in the car and in the football stands, Christ is here with us. Being used by people now who don't want to go to the worship assemblies when they maybe they could because of this. Well, wherever I am, Christ is with me if there's two or three. And I suppose Christ is with people if there's just one or two. I've... I've spoken in groups on Sunday morning when there are only two or three of us. Literally done that. And I understood that, that Christ was with us there or whether there's 5,000. But that really isn't the point of this verse. This verse falls within the context of discipline, of church discipline. If you read the verses above it beginning in... in uh, let me go over here to this. In verse 15 where the context starts. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whoever, whatever you bind on earth, 
shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that's not a good translation of the verb tenses at the bottom. It should say, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. He's telling them to follow my will and doing what you do about this. But this is a process Jesus mentions of correcting problems between people. And it forms kind of a skeleton for handling all kinds of different difficulties in the church. I think this is partly how you ought to deal sometimes with false teachers or what you think is false. You ought to go to them alone and figure out what's being said and what they mean and make sure you understand them. And and, and when you realize it's still wrong and they're still teaching it, then you can go through this. It it involves other difficulties that happen between people in churches. But it's not about whether you could have a prayer meeting in a, in the football stadium or not with a couple of you together. That's not what he's saying. And he says uh, that that's why he says if two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. He's talking about people that have to gather even as the two or three witnesses here in this case to go over a difficult problem to try to solve something between people that's a dispute. And he says, if you follow my will in this, then I'm going to be with you in doing this. It's not a pleasant thing. I've been in this situation many times. It's extremely unpleasant and difficult to try to work out difficulties between Christians and other people or or other sins that have been committed. Go through that and figure out what's really happened in this case and who is right and what needs to be done and try to get people to change and to repent. Jesus says, I'm with you in this process if you are depending on my will. That's why it says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, if you pull that verse, that's another. You can pull verse 19 out of context and say, well, if two of us get together uh, and we agree that we want to be able to rob this bank successfully and we ask Jesus to help us rob this bank successfully, then he'll be with us in this. Doesn't it say anything that you ask? What about if I want to get together with somebody and rob a bank with them? And I pray to God, he'll help me do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, can't I? Do you see how all these verses have been pulled out of what they could, what they really mean and used by so-called pastors and preachers, other self-help people to make money off of, as it were? There are a lot of other places in the Bible you can go to give people confidence in what they need to have confidence in. And, and build them up without taking scriptures and use them completely out of the, what, what they were meant to be. So yes, when you have to do difficult things with respect to helping people go through their problems and even yourself, God's with you in that process. When you have to involve other people, he'll be with you. won't feel like it sometimes, but he's with you in that. That's what this verse is saying. He was trying to tell the apostles this. So, <clears throat> number three. Verse 11, this may be the one that's being most misused right now. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I, that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So we send out graduation cards. And we put this on the graduation card for someone graduating high school or college that uh, God, is gonna, we, God is sending them thoughts of peace and give them a future and a hope. And we use this as a personal encouragement, as it were, for people that that God is protecting their future, that somehow God has in the future only good things for all of us, only success for all of us. 
Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've been alive so long and been such a failure. I just don't believe that God always has some future in mind for us that we would deem successful or not. Was Paul's life a success while he was alive? I don't believe, I don't believe any of the apostles' lives turned out to be successes by anything that the, anybody outside the, the 12 would consider a success. They were all put to death except John. He died on the island probably alone or after having suffered in exile. They weren't St. John and St. Matthew back then. There were, there were no measures of success in their life that anybody would recognize. Did God have in mind for them a, a future and a hope while they were alive? No, this verse is not used to mean that at all. This verse, if you go back and look at it in its context in the book of Jeremiah, this verse isn't talking about us at all or people, individuals at all. It's talking about the nation of Israel. That even though they were in captivity, and many of them began to think that they were just destroyed, that God had sent them to captivity, and all hope was lost of them going home or having anything in the future, or even their children. They had lost all hope. And so he says, thus says the Lord, verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work towards you and cause you to return to this place. Now, not all of them were going to be able to do that. Some of them would, very few, but most would be gone by then. Just like if you made a promise to even some of these young people here that 70 years from now, something's going to happen. Well, some of them would be here, some won't. You here is not the individuals, it's the nation of Israel. He was sending them into captivity, but he was not destroying them. For I know the thoughts I think towards you. He had already told them his thoughts he thinks toward them. He had told them he was going to, going to preserve this nation, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. In the future, there's going to be peace for you, not evil. Evil here meaning not moral evil, but bad things happening to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your, all your heart in the future. He's speaking of the nation of Israel. So I suppose, you know, it, it's nice to pull a thought out that sounds good, but this verse is really misused a lot in evangelical and Christian circles today uh, to teach, and along with a couple of others, that, that God has a plan for us from the time before we're born. He has a plan for you that you have to live and try to figure out what that plan is for you every day for you to do. And so when you, before you take a job or before you move or before that, whatever you do, you have to sit around and try to figure out what God's plan is for you that day. It's misused in this. And the future and hope here was the hope of the nation of Israel, not their individual lives. So let's keep it straight because this will begin to teach people that the idea of pros prosperity, um, I, I think in other translations it has the word prosperity or prosper in here. It's not re referring to money or anything we would consider prosperity. This is a promise that God will, well, I think this is pretty much parallel to the prophecies in the book of Revelation or the picture of the book of Revelation. Here are saints who have been killed for, for serving Christ. He pictures them underneath the altar in chapter 4, or chapter 6, excuse me. He picks them underneath the altar. They've been beheaded, and they're awaiting to be waiting to be justified or vindicated. And God tells them, hold on for a moment. I'm not done yet. In other words, I have a future and a hope for you. You're Not all is lost. He was telling the ones who 
were still alive, who had seen their friends and relatives put to death. Not all is lost. I still have a plan. And he would, he would say to them, the church is going to survive. My name will not disappear. My people will not disappear. Some of you may be killed, but the church will survive. That's kind of what this verse is about. And then number four, the big one. Judge not that you be not judged. You knew I was going to come to this, didn't you? There's probably no more abused verse in the Bible in our generation than this verse, is there? It's the one verse that every unbelieving friend that you have knows from the Bible. They don't know anything else about God or the Bible, but they know this verse. And what this verse means is you have no right to say anything negative uh, uh, that I am doing or what I want to do. You have no right to criticize anything that I like because God says don't judge. And I, I think there might, a while there might be some validity to this idea in, among some Christians, but th- this is what the world has against us. They say that you're judgmental. Well, I can accept that criticism, except tell me what you mean by judgmental. Define things for me. Then we'll discuss whether I will admit to it or not. What is judgmental? If you mean I don't have any right to criticize anyone for their moral behavior, or even to say in a general way, adultery is a sin. Well, that's very judgmental about toward those who are committing adultery. Some of my best friends have committed adultery. I know, that's the whole problem. Maybe you're committing adultery. But we're supposed to, because they, their feelings might get hurt about that, not say anything about anybody's behavior, unless, of course, they don't fit the politically correct mold we're in, then we can judge them all we want to, call them all kinds of names. So this verse is only used selectively against certain kinds of people for certain positions that they take being judgmental. But is that what it means at all? I'm not, I'm not going to criticize Jesus' statement, judge not that you be not judged. I'm not going to criticize that because he said that, and it means something. But what does it mean? Well, when you look at the context, you see more of what it means. For with the reason you should be careful, as it were, be careful or don't judge, that you be not judged, it's almost if, I think he's, one interpretation of this is that he's talking about being judged by other people. Because he says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. So if I'm a person that goes around nitpicking everybody else's life and I'm hard on other people, I have no grace or compassion or forgiveness or patience with people. What can I expect happen to me? The same thing. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way because those kind of people make sure that they don't suffer the consequences of their behavior as much as they can. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? So how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look a plank at your... So how, how do you even get close enough to a person to look in their eye when you got a two by four sticking out of your own eye? This is humor in the Bible, by the way. This is, this is considered to be humor. Hypocrite. You're an actor. You're a pretender. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. Should you remove the speck from your brother's eye? I guess. But he's saying, be careful when you when you accuse people of things and criticize them because you may have a worse problem of your own. Now, this should not prevent us 
from speaking out against what's wrong or trying to correct anybody or else all of us should never try to correct anyone. And I know the Bible doesn't teach that because most of the New Testament is filled with admonitions for us to help and encourage and teach one another. Didn't God in the beginning of the Bible say to uh, uh, condemn Cain for the attitude, am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that? Yes, you're your brother's keeper. That's the answer. Well, how do I keep and help my brother if I never am willing to say, you know, you're, you're, you're doing something dangerous here. Man. Be careful. It's wrong. What you're doing is wrong. What kind of brother would I be, even to my own physical brothers, if I saw them doing wrong things and I never said anything to them because I didn't want to be judgmental? So the Bible is filled with places where we have to, and, and, and in reality. <clears throat> so uh, we'll come back to this, but he says here, he's, the whole point of this context is he's talking about hypocrisy of people that are willing to pick other people's lives apart, but have no idea of looking at their own life in this case. It's just unbelievable. And we see such, we see this going on so much in the political world and in the, our culture that it's interesting. And those are very people that use this verse, of course, against Christians. But it's so, it's incredible to see so many examples of this. God's warning me. I better be careful. And in fact, he tells me in Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a, in a spirit of gentleness. Looking to yourself, lest you also are tempted. In Galatians 6, when he tells me to go and help my brother who's fallen, who's overtaken in a trespass, he says, or a fall, I'm to go to him and try to correct him, but I'm also to look at myself, lest I'm doing the same thing or something else that needs to be corrected. That's all that we can expect of each other. You know, if I can't, I was telling one of my mentors the other day, my main mentor, Melvin Curry, had, was fortunate enough to be able to have a lunch with him. He's turning 90 in a month or so. <clears throat> and we were talking about preaching and teaching and stuff. I said, well, and, and somehow this kind of subject came up. And I said, that's one of the biggest problems that I have in preaching, have had since the beginning, is that when I'm up here talking to you about different things, I'm feeling the weight of this in my own life. I'm feeling the pain of this in my own life, and it hurts me. It hinders me. Now, you only have a couple of responses to that that are possible. One is just to ignore that fact that what you're telling other people you may very well be guilty of or at least have done, maybe it's a big problem. I can just ignore that and harden my heart against it, and I think that's what a lot of preachers have done, and that's why they eventually appear to be such phonies. Or I can continue to admonish and rebuke people that need it and teach them the right way, knowing that I'm also tempted, knowing that I'm also sometimes guilty, and try to fix that, acknowledging the truth of that matter. Jesus says, stop being a phony about these things when you deal with other people. And um, uh, it's a very difficult thing to do, to judge. In fact, if you go look... I don't want to take too much more time on this. We've got to stop in a second. But if you look in verse 6, we stopped at verse 5. If you were to look in verse 6 in your Bible, he tells you there, don't give that which is holy unto dogs and don't cast your pearls before swine. How in the world? Is he talking about actual dogs and actual pigs here? He's talking about people. Well, 
do I not have an obligation then to judge if someone is a swine or a dog? In relation to the Word of God? He tells me to. I have to ascertain that this person is a swine who will trample me under his feet if I try to teach them too much. Or they're a dog who will misuse the Word of God, can't understand it. My dog doesn't understand anything spiritual. I have to make a judgment about someone to even do what he says in verse 6 after he says don't be judged. You go a bit further into the chapter, in the same chapter, in verse 15, he tells me, beware of sheep and wolves in sheep's clothing. Do I have to make any judgments about people and things to talk to find a wolf in sheep's clothing? You better bet I, you bet I do. And then he tells me, beware of false prophets. I have to make judgments about things. Decide that somebody, when I say somebody's a false teacher or a false prophet, I've made a judgment. Oh, but you can't judge. I have to judge. Jesus tells me to judge. So I know when he says do not judge, he doesn't exclude all manner of judgment or criticism. And he tells me to figure out that good fruit doesn't come from a bad tree. Well, I gotta figure out what a bad tree is there and who that is, don't I? So right here in this very same chapter, in the same sermon, in the same time he was telling the one thing, he tells them all this other. So let's be sure we take the whole context in our mind when we talk. Now, the other the other error in this that I think Christians fall into is they ignore what Jesus is saying. And they are judgmental in a hypocritical or phony way. And that's why you see so many of these preachers, celebrity pastors who have counseled everybody about uh, morality and holiness, and they're they're on their third girlfriend this month. It all comes to light. So we see that yes, they should have been a little more circumspect about what they're doing and what they're thinking before they go and tell other people what to do. We got to move on. The last one is this one here in verse ten of Psalm forty-six. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Usually, you find this on coffee mugs. Desktop screensaver with the roses in the background, paintings with a mountain. Uh, you'll see that section of this verse carved out. And it's not even a whole verse, actually. It's just a piece of a verse. So this is about me. And I've seen it used up here before the services. Be still and know that I am God. Put on the screen so everybody can sit down and shut up. Is that what this verse is talking about? Is it talking about the fact that we should just make sure we don't talk so God's ideals will come into our head? And that's when the Holy Spirit speaks to me when I'm being still and quiet. That's not what it's talking. I don't believe that idea is even scriptural. But uh, it's okay to be quiet and think and meditate upon God's word. But that's not the time that he speaks to you necessarily listening. The voice you're hearing is your own voice telling you what you think and what you want to do. This context of this verse, he says, uh, in verse Psalm 46, the nations raged, verse 6. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. This is a recognition of God being who he is. And uh, he can act and does things in the world whether I do anything or not about it. He's acting in this world right now. Many of us don't know what to do sometimes with our lives, what's happening in our country, around the world. God is at work. He's doing what he wants to do. 
It doesn't please us sometimes or greatly pleases us. Just depends on who wins an election, you know, and how fickle we are, whatever we think should be done. All of that is to be held as a minor thing sometimes because we do not know the work of God. He has to destroy before he can build. And sometimes he destroys and sometimes he builds up. Sometimes it's his intention to destroy. And, um, you know, I said this, I'm going to get two sidetracks. I said this the other night. Oh, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, just, I'll talk about it some other time. This is an incredible comfort and a reminder to know that we can be still and know that God is in control. Now, I don't buy what I'm hearing from some people that, oh, it doesn't matter what we do in our country because, you know, God's in control. It does matter what we do in our country. It does matter what I do. God's going to be in control. He will do that. But part of the way God exercises power is through his people, through saints, through truth. That's how he exercises power. And I need to understand that that's what it is. So everything God does and says is intentional. And we need to understand that these scriptures then need to be kept in their context. One last verse, 2 Timothy 3, the one that you know. All scripture is is given, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the, that's the, the scope of the word of God. And when you and I take a little phrases out and misuse them, it doesn't help God's cause at all. It creates confusion and misunderstanding. The Bible is not just something you find something nice to put on a cross stitch. It's not about that. It's about understanding the thoughts that are being processed there and what it really means and making an application to our lives. Thank you so much for listening today. I certainly do appreciate it. And as we close our service, we're going to sing, uh, close our sermon, excuse me, we're going to sing number 125, Gary Selected. Do you know my Jesus? And we pray that if you this morning need someone to pray with you about a sin or a difficulty or something that's troubling you or something that you need to need to make right, we're here to help you do that. We can pray with you. God can forgive. And we can try as brothers and sisters to encourage you in the way that all of us need to be in. That's the way of Christ. So if you need prayer this morning, come to the front. We'll pray with you. If this morning you need to be baptized in into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. We invite you to do that today too. Let's stand and sing.